0: Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read.
1: I'm writing this from my mother's apartment.
0: It's called Orange.
1: All I could think about was being written into her life story.
0: She made up a story. About what it. Was, it was the inspiration on. for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the I genesis? <laughs> I used to be almost dependent Dear Bea, on voice. A speaker
1: in a poem. I want to talk <laughs> to you, <laughs> and the conversation starts.
0: Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. Sam Sachs is a queer Jewish writer and educator, the author of Madness, winner of the National Poetry Series, and Bury It, winner of the James Laughlin Award from the Academy of American Poets. He's the two-time Bay Area Grand Slam champion with poems published in the New York Times, Poetry Magazine, and Buzzfeed. He's the poetry editor at Boat Press, a 2018 Ruth Lilly Fellow from the Poetry Foundation, and currently a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford University.
1: This first one uh, is called Lisp. And I had a lisp growing up, and it's modeled on the, th- the forms we had to fill out in speech therapy to train the lisp out of us. And the poem goes like this. There are more S's in possession than I remembered. My name hinges on the S, is serpentine, has sibilance, is simple, six-lettered, a symbol different from its sign. Sound shapes how we think about objects. The mouth shapes how sound spills out how a speaker is seen. sigmatism is the homosexual mystique. My parents sought treatments. I was sent to a speech pathologist. Sixth grade, I was schooled, practiced silence, syllabics, syntax, my voice sap in the high branches, my voice a spoon filled with sugared semen. I licked silk when I spoke. I spilt milk when I sang. When I sang, sick men tore wings from city birds, so I straightened my sound into a masculinist I. The S is derived from the Semitic letter shin, meaning my swishiness is Hebraic, is inherited It's semantic. No matter what was sacrificed, the tongued Isaac, a son against the stone of my soft palate. Still, I slipped my hand into my neighbor's waistband and pulled back pincers. Sisyphus with the sissiest lips, parcel tongued assassin, sassy and passing for a poison sea. Now, when I say, please, can I suck your cock? I sound straight as the still second hand. On a dead watch. Okay, so that that last poem was in Poetry Magazine, and my grandmother loved it. This next poem is in No Magazines. It's, um, my brother and his wife just had twins, um, and the ungendered term for their relationship to me is nibblings. So I have two nibblings living in L.A., and I've been working on a sequence of poems for them to, like, help midwife them into this terrible world, uh... And my brother, upon hearing that I was writing poems for them, said something to me that spurred this next poem, for my nibblings in anticipation of their birth. My brother, knowing my work well, asked I not include any references to semen in the throat in this poem I am writing you, so I shan't. Instead, semen in the books, semen in the leaves, Semen in the ground that grows the semen trees, also known as the calorie pear. Semen in the boat that carried our family here. Semen in the waters where we left our dead. Semen in the meadows where we buried and bled. Semen in the light streaming through the stained glass of our synagogue. The image depicting an ark in an ocean of semen. Gossamer semen. Octopus semen. Garden of semen. There are so many words for you, children, and none of them are dirty, though not all of them are yours. Now, as you eat what your mother eats, her fear is yours as you enter this world, torn and thrown to the birds, but still the light is thick in the trees. The calorie pears are loud this season, and my throat is bright with flowers for you both. Such beautiful flowers. I hardly have the words. Yes, so that was my attempt at optimism. Uh, you know, I'm not into children. <laughs> but, I, you know, I like, I guess they're the future. <laughs> um, I wrote these after the campfire fires in paradise. Okay, campfire. After the fires come rain. And in the time between one devastation and another, We delight in the normal pleasures of a sky, weeping like an adolescent in a multiplex parking lot. How unusual for this place without water to be now drowned in it. People lift their heads, tree farms drinking at the gray tap. It hasn't rained since I moved back. And I know after this comes the mudslides from the ruined hillsides, and later, wild blooms of near devastating beauty, which too will die and dry into food for a new fire, even more terrifying than the last. Where our breathing masks will laugh at our efforts to respire here. And despite its portent, the rain this morning is lovely. The sound of it outside my window does what it did as a child, permissions us to stay in or go out and be wedded along with everyone who lives here, who too exists in this circumstance of weather, who breathes in the wet sidewalk. I watch the trees drink and glisten like old drag queens, read an article from my father on the hatred of Jews in Europe, violence and fire on the rise and on the horizon. I read the article, and then read the article again, this time only for the names of cities where statues are cut from marble into the shape of men so beautiful and soft you can't help but fall in love, the stone breathing and hot, and when wet, almost dancing. This next poem of Marie is called Etz Chaim, or Tree of Life, which is a uh, You know, the Book of Life and the Torah, and then also the name of the synagogue in Pittsburgh where 11 people were murdered. I I read this poem occasionally when I go on tour, and uh, it's wild how short our collective memory is around national traumas and tragedies, right? Like, a handful of places, folks, like, don't remember that this happened, and it was, you know, within the past half year. And this poem opens with an epigraph from... uh, I guess from Twitter that goes, 11 elders were executed in a Pittsburgh synagogue in the deadliest attack on Jewish Americans in history. And there's no way to sense this sentence in language, to diagram or scan it. The more you look, the more the words break down like eggs in a coward's stomach. The word Pittsburgh tears apart into dark birds. The word synagogue unspools into a length of red thread. Elders becomes a plum tree, young and flowering again. No way to language this, to use the sentence without breaking it. Oh, Pittsburgh, I am with you in Pittsburgh. I am Pittsburghed in Pittsburgh. I am uneldered there as I am here, eldered flowered here. I am a synagogue in Pittsburgh filled with the bright laughter of guns, with the dark gunfire of children. My people are an extant species. My people are geniuses at turning trauma into text at turning the soil and planting improper nouns there. The killer said, screw your optics. I'm going in. And he did. Language is to be believed, if not trusted. The killer said all Jews must die, and this is also true, all us must. Even the Gentiles among us return to dust, and that dust returns us to Pittsburgh, where we cough at the clean air, where we execute the American sun, where we act like we aren't already history. This is a poem that's sort of like an ode to the weather underground. What was it that drove the weather underground underground? What was the switch that flipped back their hair to show twelve foreheads crowned with coming bullets? Was it the times? Was it the tyrants? Was it the man murdered in bed beside his wife? Was it the price of food, the burning rubber forests, the boys sent across the world to die? Or was it more like the steady rise in sea level? A slowly radicalizing shoreline. The water that comes regardless of how you build your life raft from what rhetoric according to whose religion. Arguments over ethics and tactics braid up into the same conservative hairdo unless, of course, there's a knife to the neck. It's amazing what a well-planted comma can do. A well-placed bomb will change the meaning of a bus line. A dumpster fire police response time polity polite society. The king must always be terrified. Tell me, what is it exactly that would cause you to worm into the dirt and rise with the flood in order to help your countrymen breathe? Whose hunger is worthy of your riot today? What does it take to break civility into actual ass bread? In college, we began to prepare for the coming devastation. It was always kind of a joke still. We learned the basics of farming dead soil, ate each other's semen, argued over the acquisition of firearms, built little utopias from our book's imagination. Apocalypse is too Greek a word for the burning river to come, for the cachet of stolen hair. The camps that have been and will again spring from the dirt like rotting turnips. Apocalypse means literally a veil lifting. The wool from the eyes. Cowardice opening its curtains. Comfort into landmines. It's 70 degrees in February. My family is under surveillance. The king must die. So I guess I wrote that like, not exactly after the election, but that February, Temperature references, like those were like mass protests to the sort of new like fascist uh, administration were kind of only possible because of climate change. And it was like 70, you know, 75 degrees in New York. So like you were able to have tens of thousands of people come out who probably wouldn't have otherwise. Double-edged sword. That'll kill us all. Okay, this was sort of like an elegy for both Tumblr and Lucy Brockbrideau, the poet. Uh I don't know if you've ever... Like masturbated, looking at a computer while a lecture on poetry is going on in the background. But that's sort of the inaugural seed for this poem. (laughs) Anyway. Okay, it's called Memory. The whole morning swallowed by audio of the newly dead poet reading the long dead poets still living poems. Streaming out into the air like a prayer passed down in code. This set behind a scroll of men fucking in 15-second loops, as if pleasure too were incremental, fragmented, and unkillable, as if to produce nothing. Elsewhere on my computer, photos of men I no longer speak to in various stages of intimate undress. On occasion, I resurrect one's mouth on my neck just before he disappears again. On the screen, a man's inside another in a wood somewhere cold. The bottom grips a tree as if it might root him. Both make noise outside language, while Lucy lists the names of the many poets who've shot themselves in the heart. This is called Everyone's an Expert at Something. The more I learn, the more I learn, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. To someone who doesn't care a fig for poetry, they'd likely think, I knew a lot, yet in most bookshops I'm lost, shelves heavy with the bodies of forgotten writers. It's relative. A president can say audacity or a president can say sad and both eat the same cured meat of empire. When I say I carry my people inside me, I don't mean a country The star that hangs from my neck is simply a way of saying Israel is not a physical place, but can be written down and carried anywhere. Says my people are most beautiful when moving, when movement, when our only state is the liquid state of water is adapting to our container. Homeland sometimes just means what books you've read, what stories you've spread with your sneakers. My people, any place you live long enough to build bombs is a place you've lived too long. It's relative. My friends, the only thing I know for sure is the missiles on television are only beautiful if you've never known suffering. My friends, the only country I will ever pledge my allegiance to is your music, is under investigation for treason uh yeah this is an ode to miss piggy i'm writing a new book of poems about pigs um and this is for her great porcine drag queen you who grew erudite in the slaughterhouse shadow eyelashes like black swords teased up to challenge heaven eternal in your powdered foundation refusing every day the knife's inevitable and unkosher ending snouted fount of youth seminal queer iconoclast pearls to bed, pearls in the junkyard, pearls on television diva of late night of talk shows, of primetime, door kicker for the non-conventional romance, shown us how to love across identities arbitrary as phylum and species. Bless that impossible coupling. How you took an entire frog inside you and remained the same bad pig who'd karate chop anyone dumb enough to disrespect. Hiya. What little faggot wouldn't look upon you and be seen or saved or salved? You who never questioned your destined for stardom, oh miss, miss. Oh great swine demimond, oh dame pig, I'm yours till I end. You, my religion, how I understand all us now. We are ourselves and the hand inside that guides us. We who are given voice by the same spirit who gives voice to everyone we have ever loved. I started off as a rapper, actually, and a theater maker in like high school. Um, And those sort of, like, blended together into performance poetry, um, which then led to the slam. um, And slam is, like, less a style of poem and more a competition. So I, like, ended up doing slam for years in the Bay Area. I, like, hosted the Berkeley slam for a while and ran a show. And then – but I think my whole community in the performance poetry world was, like, always invested, uh, you know, in literature, right, and in how the work in the air – like, reflected back on the page and how you can make a sing, like, a poem sing in a book. When you write now, do you feel, like, performance is an influence
0: on how how a poem is, like, composed and revised?
1: Yeah. I mean, I love um, letting the sound of a poem sort of move it forward, right? Like, I like the term, like, sonic sensibility as a form of logic that helps move a thing. But I think that's, like, also what poetry's been since the jump, right? Like, it's, like, initially an oral medium you know like one of humans first art forms i mean i love novels too but it's a relatively uh new new genre (laughs) that's right for (laughs) all uh so yeah i think like uh i'm always invested in sound um and sort of like teasing out what uh what's possible in both medium you know like uh there are different ways that language sings and so like uh figuring out how to exploit and corrupt both. Is, is like, yeah, something I'm working through right now. Yeah. Um, I'm also
0: curious about how uh, the audience or readership or addressee of a poem influences the writing of it. A lot of your poems have a particular you in them. Mm. Sometimes it seems to be maybe an individual you, sometimes it's maybe a particular community. Yeah. Um, how, does, how does like the, the recipient of a poem sort of influence how it gets made?
1: Um, you know, I mean, I think each, each poem has its own logic, right? Um, so there is that poem for generally like American Jews that I read, which is like directed at American Jews and anyone else can listen. Um, and then there's like more sort of like personal, personal use for like lost beloveds, right? Or, uh, like an elegiac you, um, I don't know if there's like a unifying principle, of a listener outside of like when I choose to do a reading um, or like when I choose what I'm going to read, um, I think having audience in mind is always really important, right? because it's such a privilege that anyone wants to listen to your creative work, right? Or like, I don't know, like the the work we do toiling alone by ourselves. And so I think uh, the unifying principle, I guess, would just be a lot of respect for whomever, respect for the time of whomever wants to listen to what I'm doing, yeah. So making sure it's not like either reproducing inherited structural violences or it's not like entirely masturbatory. So I feel like those are the two (laughs) poles that I'm trying to like veer away from, yeah.
0: Well, that makes me think of um, the line from Tree of Life, uh, Mm. language is to be believed if not trusted. Mm. And that really struck me as something that is true and... And I think it's probably apparent in a lot of your work in terms of grappling with language of the state or grappling with like language of the medical establishment, which I know you've also written um, a fair amount about. Um, How does, this is a really broad question, but how does a poet, you know, grapple with sort of corrupt or debased or like pernicious language Mm. without reifying it, without, you know, upholding it, I guess? Yeah. Um...
1: Oh, that's, a tough one. that's not such a huge No, question. i love it i love it um I, I guess i think it's like my first thought is to like map on like a post-structuralist reading of like uh languages are material so it's like the thing you're meant to highlight and corrupt um and so like i don't know i think i think like we have so much external text that you can queer and play with and i think it's like yeah, I think I oscillate between wanting to have the most straightforward and true gesture. Like I like a, a poem that cries at you. You know what I mean? Like a simple poem that's just like the sobbing human mapped into language and also something that like corrupts like and in queers uh, inherited texts. So um, the 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 book that you were pointing to, uh, Madness, is my first book of poems and it uh, takes the DSM-1 and... And, like, sort of that moment when homosexuality was taken out of the uh, the diagnostic manual. And so it, like, no longer became a disease. And um, thinking through ways that language has informed and built queer people, right, and, like, changed how we move through the world and how we self-identify and connect with, you know, institutions and whatever. But I think the point I want to make is, like, uh, it seems, like, so case by case, right? Like, the language we get, right, comes to us through... Uh, you know, institutions and warfare and migration and you know, and so I think like the work of a poem for me often is like trying to isolate where that language comes from and what it does in the world when you reproduce it. Can you talk about what you think it means to to queer something?
0: Um, like I've been teaching this class as I think I mentioned to you yeah. with the um, it's queer a queer workshop, mm. and uh, in our last class the other day we were talking about. What? Wh- how we wh- is there such a thing as like a queer sensibility? Something that we could like actually, yeah, point to. And I, one of the students asked me like, "Oh, well, do you think there could be like, like LGBT writers who write straightly and mm-hmm. and the inverse? You know?" Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I definitely think that, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Like, it would be really. it's it feels like a very ineffable thing, like yeah. pointing to some gay writer like, but he writes like a straight person. You know, like I feel that, but yeah, it's, yeah, I don't yeah. know how I would really articulate it any more than that
1: I feel, yeah it's such a shady thing to say as, <laughs> especially as a professor I feel like that would be a tough look to be like <laughs> she writes <straightly. laughs> Um yeah it seems to be like my I mean my thought is like it seems more like a categorized like a reparative categorization of like what is so it's like like, you can call or read a thing as queer, but the text, like, already exists on its own. And so I think, like, queering a thing is, like, the reparative process of taking, like, an inherited object and then, like, putting it in, like, the lens of queerness. Like, all all homosexual writers before the invention of the term homosexuality, right? Um, or, like, looking for the sort of, like, queer subtext. That seems like such a queer project, you know? To, like, take a straight film and be like, oh, yeah, but, like, that, like homoerotic friendship is like a queer material for generations to come, you know, and like helps build I- people's identities as queer people. I mean, I think, I think queering a thing has to do with like perverting it, right? Um, like politicizing it and sort of like highlighting the lack of stable categories inside of a thing or like a, a bit of writing. I think like erasure is generally like in, in poetry, right? And erasure is like where you like, physically x out parts of texts and reproduce it to use that and to make like a new poem and i think that's like inherently a queer project mostly i think that's mostly a queer project (laughs) um yeah i think anything that uh, has to do with like uh corruption or uh or perversion feels queer to me yeah i don't know corruption perversion
0: yeah those seem like good yeah good categories for sure (laughs) um well, I want to ask about two two poems in particular. Um, one is I wanted to, speaking of queering things and yeah. uh, finding queer role models and icons, I wanted to ask about the Miss Piggy poem, which um, I enjoyed so much because I felt like it had this beautiful blend of like, uh, a, a kind of camp or mm-hmm. you know hyper, hyperbolic humor to it mm-hmm. with like these references to... The slaughterhouse and mm. the knife and this actual threat of mm. violence. And I guess I'm just curious, maybe, uh, if you could talk a little about the generation of that poem or mm. sort of how you yeah. how you came to see Miss Piggy as as a queer um, icon.
1: I mean, I think she's just always been that for me. You know, like uh, one of my first partners and I had like had a Miss Piggy thing where like we would do her voice and act like we ran shit when we were just, like, some shitty college kids. Writing a book on pigs, I've sort of had to, like, shift my attention where I, like, I'm just making lists of pig things, you know? Various, like, uh, pig cultural icons and, like, literary figures and going to hang out on pig farms and stuff. And so I think, like, Miss Piggy was one of the first and easiest objects where I was like, oh, she, that's, like, that's a queer pig. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, and I think it, like, I don't know, she's a diva. She's a celebrity, right? I think she, like... In the same way that so many queer – so many like diva singers and celebrities are like queer icons, you know? I feel like she's like the Judy Garland or Mariah Carey of the Muppets, you know? Um, And so I think like she's also there for children. She's like one of the first times children see like a glamorous, like chubby woman who runs shit. You know, and I feel like I don't know what could be like a better model for a young queer kid to like see themselves in the world, right? Or to imagine what's possible for their lives. Yeah. And I think also like the ode to the common thing, or like the ode to like the cult like the cultural object or like the the like collected celebrity that we all love is like an ecstatic and queer form as well. So I think like I've got a a bunch of odes in the book that are like to, you know, to various uh queer slash pig objects, Yeah. You know. <laughs>
0: um, I also wanted to ask about a very different poem, The Weather Underground. Mm. And um, you had said that you were writing that, I guess, in particularly to left-leaning people in this era of yeah. emergency. Yeah. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think a lot of times when I hear writers who... Who write about whether it's in poetry or fiction? Who write uh, explicitly about politics? There seems to be this like moment where someone asks them like, "Well, what 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 like efficacy do you want this work to have in the world? Or like, do you want this work to like yeah. affect change?" And there's this kind of like, "Well, maybe not. You know, poetry is not really the you know, uh-huh. it's kind of an obscure form." And mm-hmm. and and then it's like it's it's not about it's about something else, you know? Mm. And I just, I, I don't know, I'm just curious, like, what work do you want this poem to do? Or what, you know,
1: um, what are your hopes for it? I mean, to be honest, I think it's like, it's hard for me to, like, articulate this without being, putting myself in danger. But I don't know. <laughs> like, I think, uh, I think the poem is, like, wondering, like, what it is that, like, causes, like, w- white folks or folks in privilege in particular to like radicalize their behavior or relationship to the world. And it's not like about empathy or solidarity, but like about actually um, destroying like a government building and like, or, you know, uh, blowing up a cop car. Like, I, don't, I mean, I think like, what are like the question for me of that poem is like, what is it going to take? Like what needs to be at risk in your life in order to radicalize you, you know, or in order to like, um, to do work that may or may not be important. I think my poems in general are invested in politics, right? Um, I think like the Miss Piggy poem is like a, as political a poem as the Weather Underground poem, right? Um, and I think anything that sort of like models the the sort of like the queer person surviving or thriving is like as political as like a, um, a poem about like police violence or uh, you know, climate crisis stuff. And I think like, I think I want all of my poems. I mean, obviously I have no control over them and language is fickle, you know, and whatever. But I think I'm invested in uh, all of my poems doing work in the world or like impacting or affecting like a reader or listener, ideally toward like a, a kinder, more progressive anti-capitalist uh, and like faggy sensibility. Well there's that
0: great that's just the, the line I really love in that poem is mm. um it's well or the, the juxtaposition of it's amazing what a well planted comma can do, a well placed bomb will change. Da-da-da-da-da. Like oh, the yeah. <laughs> the yoking together of those two things. Yeah. Um yeah. and yeah, I mean I guess the reason I asked that question was just because it did feel like this was in in contrast to some of the other straw man poets I was alluding to earlier, mm. you know, it did feel like this was this was like more like Nakedly asking a question, Mm. a real world question, of its readers. Yeah,
1: well, and I think that's what poems, for me, do best, right? Like, uh, it allows us to sort of like lay bare uh, how we interact with the world and how we live and what allows and what like circumstances and histories allow us to live in the world. Um, That has been like the biggest shock for me entering academia, which I guess I've been in graduate school for like eight years now or something. (laughs) But you know, before that, I came, uh, I came into poems like, in that bar game, right, or in a slam or in community workshop spaces where poems were often used to, like, articulate the circumstance of your neighborhood, right, or grappling with, like, the grief of a loved one, right, or, like, talking about, like, police violence. And um, it was interesting when I went to graduate school and there was, like, people were writing for their writing workshop, right? Or writing for other writers and it wasn't about the poem living in the world and affecting other people who like may or may not have the same like circumstance or like there's less about like the work the poem does in the world and more of the work the poem does in a workshop, which seems like such a myopic and closed way of thinking about literature and like the potential language has to um, like save people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. And would seem to lower the stakes for the poem itself. Okay, well, I guess the last
0: question I'd like to ask is about um, is about identity and about community. Mm-hmm. Um, it, in in my queer workshop the other day, yeah. we were talking about... One of the students asked, like, uh, is it important to call yourself a queer writer? Mm-hmm. You know, she was saying, like, if I were writing a bio or describing myself, is mm-hmm. it important to say that I am mm-hmm. a queer writer or a queer female writer? Or should I just say writer? And sort of the larger implications of that question. And yeah. I know in a lot of the bios that I've seen of you, you you know, explicitly, mm-hmm. you know, identify as a queer Jewish writer. Um, and obviously your work addresses mm-hmm. and, and engages with both those communities. Um, yeah, I guess I'm just curious, like, Why, you know, why why make that choice? Why is that important? How does that feed the work?
1: Yeah. Um, You know, I don't know. Um, It it feels important. Um, I think it also, like, sets the term... For me, it, like, sets the terms and stakes of, like, who I'm trying to be in community with, like, the type of... Yeah, I think, like, the the sort of professional affiliations of the bio, like, only do so much and, like, also only, like, align me with particular institutions, right? Or, like... uh, I think before all of that, I'm, like, a faggot and Jewish, you know what I mean? Um, and that feels perhaps more central to my writing life than uh, being tied to, you know, the University of Texas, which gets all of its funding from, like, oil money or, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> I think there's, like, a more sort of uh, – it's, like, a politicized gesture of, like, opening up front with, like, the the queer and Jewish thing. And it, it also feels like a like a bat signal or, like, a welcome I almost had a welcome net and that's a bit nefarious um or like uh, you know it's like calling my people to me right or like modeling how i want to be in the world and with whom you know
0: i i guess i also think it's interesting because a lot of writers i feel are act feel very distanced from their communities mm. you know by choice yeah. or by whatever you know um We were reading an interview with James Baldwin where he said, like, he's never really felt like a part of any group. I mean, he knows the different groups that he, you know, can be claimed by, but he's never really felt Mm -hmm. like he fully belonged to any of them or really fully wanted to belong or participate in any of them. The idea of being this sort of elusive, you know, outsider. And so it feels feels like a a different, like, authorial uh, ethos to be like, no, I am... Yeah, like part of this group and like firmly rooted in that. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think there are so many different models for ways that writers can be in the world. Um, I know like a lot of folks who like the sort of individualistic writer who like holds themselves up and makes their work and then like enters the the literary world. Um, I think that was like that was really championed in graduate school for some reason. But I, I mean, for me, it's it's often been about accountability to a particular group of people. That's like kept me writing or like, uh, helped shape the urgency in my work or like the materials of my poems. Um, so like, just like going to a weekly reading and having, uh, to read poems to the same group of people over and over again. Right. And, um, like that feels like a kind of accountability and community accountability. I mean, I think also like the model of the individualistic writer feels a little itchy for me because like, like we all work with inherited language and inherited materials. So it's like you're you're writing in conversation, whether or not it's like with living people or, you know, dead writers. So I think uh, you know, I would rather like a writer be like, Oh yes, I'm in community with the dead than to be like I'm in uh I'm just like doing this by myself or like existing in a a little a little shell of my own writerly genius. You just know? sprang from the
0: head of Zeus, fully no. formed. That's right. Uh huh. Yeah. No associations. That's right. <laughs>
1: All right, thank you so much, Sam, for being here and talking with me. (laughs) Yeah, what a gift. Thanks for inviting me.
0: This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack. Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablaza, and Osei Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.